0: Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu.
1: Glad you're with us this week. And our program this time returns to a topic we've talked about a heck of a lot since we started the show more than 10 years ago. The DoD Financial Audit. Of course, during that time, the department has moved from a spot where it was getting ready for audits, which took a lot of time and effort all by itself, to actually finally undergoing audits. And that process started in 2017. And in those first few years, there was kind of a lot to be excited about if you're someone who's interested in financial management. Because after years of talking about it, DoD really was letting outside auditors in across the whole enterprise to find out what the problems really were. And a lot of problems got fixed, and they still are getting fixed. That's kind of the good news. The bad news is they're still getting fixed one by one, system by system, organization by organization, and mostly not in a way that gets after the big systemic challenges that still make the Defense Department the one and only federal agency that doesn't have a clean audit opinion. That's the best way I can sum up the current view of the DoD Inspector General, the organization that has the daunting legal responsibility to conduct the audits. Our guest this week is going to do a much better job of explaining what auditors really found over the past year. Marcus Gullett is the Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audit, Financial Management, and Reporting. And we're going to focus this week on an excellent report the OIG has produced every single year since the audits first started that tries to break down the results and the issues into plain language. So Marcus, thanks for being here and thanks for continuing the tradition of these interviews with us every year. Let me have you start by giving us Big picture view: Four years into this process of full financial statement audits for the Defense Department, where does DoD stand?
2: Yeah, thanks for the question, Jared, and, and appreciate you having me on. As you mentioned, we're, we're four years in to the financial statement audits, and, and we're entering our, our fifth year. And, and really, you know, to think about that—that's no small feat, right? We—if um, you think of the DoD as compared to the the whole of government—we're uh, talking about. Uh, over 900 billion dollars in appropriations. Uh, 54% of total government assets are in the DoD at 3.2 trillion dollars. And you know, so so from a numbers perspective, it's big. And then to be able to to kind of pull that audit off, uh, you know, that's over 1,200 auditors uh, auditing over over 26 standalone audits. So so it's worth commending the efforts that that the audit teams uh, and, the, and the components put in year in and year out. Uh, But with that said, you know, 17 of those uh, 26 standalone audits have disclaimers of opinion, uh, which basically just means that there's not enough uh, audit evidence available to conclude that the financial statements are are fairly presented. Uh, So, you know, the theme for FY 2021, frankly, it's that the progress has stalled. Uh, You know, on a positive note, all eight clean opinions from prior years remained clean in 2021. Uh, as you'll remember, last year, uh, Carmen, my, my OIG colleague, was talking to you about the DISA Working Capital Fund, which, as you'll remember, uh, had a clean opinion last year, and, and and DISA was able to sustain that clean opinion this year as well. But as you look kind of broadly at the department, the, the 17 disclaimers of opinion carried forward into 2021. Uh, many of those focus areas that the department's been uh, tackling, like IT, uh, inventory, real property, uh, you know, continue to wrestle with those similar problems that have been around for years. At the same time, there's a number of opportunities going into the next few years, right? Most of the the top senior leader positions, uh, comptroller positions in the component level and, and at DOD are filled now, and that's for the first time in years. So really now is the time to focus on on meaningful and sustainable changes that that can really move the needle.
1: Yeah, and I think one other thing to note here is, If you look back 10 years ago, I think there was a a feeling in DOD and even in the audit community that that it might be the case that you might have some services go first, military services, that is. Some services go first and make progress and kind of be trailblazers for the rest of the department. There was thinking back then that maybe that can be the Marine Corps and then everybody else can catch up. I, I think what the situation is more like today is that these systemic problems that exist that are preventing DOD from getting too clean opinions are kind of pervasive throughout the department. Is that a fair way of looking at it?
2: Yeah, that is. And, and you know, I'd say that that's sort of the the take that as we issue this this uh, understanding the results work product each year, uh, we're trying to really encourage the department to take that enterprise view, certainly pay attention to, to the progress that uh, individual components might be making, but also sort of taking that from a top-down approach and, and taking those wins and, and seeing how they can be applied across the, the department for sure.
1: All right, let's get down a little bit more to brass tacks here. You you said progress overall is stalled. Let's talk specifically about numbers of notices of findings and recommendations. Seems like a lot of them have been closed out, but more keep cropping up, right?
2: Yeah, no, good point. You know, as you may have noticed, uh, this past year, uh, auditors closed around 800 uh, prior year NFRs. And, you know, I would say those notices of findings and recommendations need to be taken into context. So so typically, yeah, a, a closed NFR... Uh, means a component took action uh, and the issue no longer exists. But you may also have a new auditor coming in, uh, which was the case for, for the Marine Corps this year, or or IT systems may be retired and replaced, uh, or maybe a process is changed. So there's a variety of reasons for why an NFR might be closed, and you might sort of see a, a corresponding NFR uh, in a different uh, area. Another, I think, helpful way to frame NFRs is to to think about sort of, by and large, when we're issuing them, management is agreeing that there's an issue there. We have over 90% concurrence rates, and they're developing corrective action plans. So so there's a cadence there of being open to addressing a specific issue. Uh, you know, what that needs to transition into is something we've been pretty consistent uh, in messaging the, the last few years, and that's around developing those sustainable business processes. So what we might see, for example, is in the the IT realm, one particular system may have an an access control issue, right? So the auditor issues the NFR, and next year the component addresses the issue in system A, for example. Well, this year the the auditor might come back and see, okay, the the, the, the issue is fixed in system A, but system B has the same exact access control issue. So that's the, the type of enterprise-wide thinking we need to see uh, before the components are able to, to move, yes, towards closing NFRs, but also addressing the the material weaknesses uh, that flow from those NFRs.
1: And I guess we should also point out, to give DoD a little bit of credit here, closing out each of those NFRs, and, and in a lot of cases, maybe not every single case, it's not just about making progress toward an eventual clean opinion. Each one of those is probably independently A business problem that's worth solving, even if you weren't thinking about audit, right? No,
2: yeah, that's a good point. And and, and as you kind of are able to message that in a way that that ties to an operational uh, impact, I think that 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 goes a long way in, in sort of motivating that type of thinking about, okay, you know, we know that we have sort of security over uh this one system like how can we think about doing that sort of across the board so yeah i would say you know as as recommenda- or nfrs are closed at that level it is indicative that um management is is taking those items seriously and, and and implementing action
1: but still it feels like year after year you know the the new nfrs or reissued nfrs are coming in at about the same rate that that existing ones are closed is that just the nature of a huge project like this once auditors get it, get in there and, and start kicking over rocks or, or is there a different or better approach that DOD as an enterprise could be taking so that those new NFRs aren't coming up so often or that they're, you know, they're, they're kind of self-solved before the auditors find them.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd approach that in a couple of different ways. You know, one, uh, as I mentioned, DOD is big, right? Quite, quite possibly the largest, uh, a financial statement audit ever. so so when you, you think about sort of expectations of, of numbers of NFRs, there's oftentimes a logical flow uh, between closing an NFR and sort of that resulting in a number of additional NFRs as, as auditors are able to to kind of get deeper into the process. So if you think of it as, as kind of like standing in a dark room with a with a small flashlight, uh, and each time you're able to close an NFR, you're kind of handed a, a larger flashlight that can shine sort of further into a room. For example, if if if, if there's an NFR just based on kind of documenting the process, for example, and, and the, the component addresses that, they document the process, the auditor has that, that larger flashlight. So now they can say, okay, this is what management says the process should, how it should work. Now I'm kind of be able to see over here, well, this uh, reconciliation isn't taking place. Uh, or maybe sort of uh, there's not supporting documentation for for valuing an asset, and so that's really part of the, the maturing process that you would certainly expect to see. And as those sort of new uh, NFRs come up, oftentimes they're they're resident in other areas as well. So th- the, when we talk about kind of enterprise wide thinking and and developing those solutions across the board that next step is really to, to to take the opportunity of, yeah, a one-off NFR, but to see where that might be sort of impacted in, in other areas.
1: Yeah, I, I like your flashlight analogy. And, and you guys have, I think, praised the department in past years for taking this approach where there is a corrective action plan for every single NFR and there is an accountable person for closing out each one of those NFRs. But it almost seems like that approach – the downside of it might be that there are too many people looking at individual trees and, and not enough high-level leadership attention looking at the forest.
2: Uh, yeah, Jared, that's a good point. And it's something that, that we bring out in, in one of the, the focus areas in the, the understanding the results summary product, and, and that's over sort of oversight and monitoring, right, uh, at the component level, but then also at the DOD level as well where management can kind of be take, taking a, that uh, component enterprise level approach and looking and, and sort of racking and stacking these, these NFRs and making sure that, that we're not just uh, implementing one-off solutions. But then also at the, at the agency-wide DOD level, they can be looking across components and really uh, fostering some conversations around sort of uh, good news stories and, and, and corrective action plans that have gotten to the, the root of the problem.
1: Marcus Gullett is the Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audit, Financial Management, and Reporting, talking about this year's edition of the OIG's Plain Language Breakdown of DOD's financial audit results, More when we come back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Our guest this week is Marcus Gullett, the Deputy Assistant DoD Inspector General for Audit, Financial Management, and Reporting. And we're talking about the OIG's current view on how DoD is doing on its progress toward, hopefully, a clean audit opinion someday. And Marcus, we talked a ton in the last segment about all the individual NFRs. Let's zoom out a bit here and talk about material weaknesses, which I think also have not really noticeably changed this year. Can you give folks who are not super audit savvy a, a quick primer on what the difference is between a material weakness and those individual NFRs, and then maybe bring us a little bit up to speed on where DOD stands with those material weaknesses this year?
2: Yeah, so I think it's helpful to think of uh, internal control deficiencies as, as sort of uh, levels of severity when we think of uh, notices of findings and recommendations or NFRs, those are really sort of indicative of deficiencies of internal control in a certain area, right? And, and, and how auditors use that is they'll start to see themes and they'll start to group those NFRs based on their impact to the financial statements. So the largest impact would be what's called a material weakness. And that's where uh, that the group of findings, results in a reasonable possibility that management will not be able to to sort of prevent and detect material misstatements on the financial statements. So one step down from that would be, again, looking at the NFRs, maybe the, the, the severity is a little bit lower, and that's called a significant deficiency, where the problem is less severe than a material weakness, but it's still important to merit attention by management. So, you know, one of the takeaways from a material weakness and a significant uh, deficiency standpoint, again, has been there wasn't much movement over the last year, uh, and and that progress is stalling. uh, And and one way you can see that is by the fact that, um, you know, 25 out of the 28 material weaknesses were were carried forward from prior years. Uh, So, you know, really by uh, reissuing these material weaknesses, that's a kind of a communication that we're not seeing the progress we would expect to see. You know, for example, uh, Joint Strike Fighter, you know, we were talking about that last year, talking about the fact that, that we would expect the Joint Strike Fighter balances to be included on the financial statements in 2021. That's been a goal, uh, a departmental goal for, for three years running, uh, and, and they're still not captured on the DOD financial statements. And as a result, you know, Joint Strike Fighter is listed as a material weakness again this year. You know, another example is uh, government property in the possession of contractors. And this has been uh, a self-identified material weakness or, or a problem, at least, for the department since before the full financial statement audits, uh, you know, dating back even to 2005. Um, so DOD doesn't have kind of a, 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 an effective process for reconciling the, re- the inventory records that are in their own systems with the records maintained by the contractors. And that all comes down, a lot of these come down to coordination, right? Outlining who's responsible for what, um, which has been a, a real challenge for, for the DOD. But yeah, I mean, as you look at, at sort of movement of material weaknesses and significant deficiencies, uh, you know, a couple of those um, issues were sort of hovering at that materiality level that I mentioned. So if, when there's a lack of controls and there's a, a, a sort of a, a more material potential material misstatement in any given year, that can push something from a significant deficiency to a material weakness. So we saw that with uh, uh, contingent legal liabilities this past year, where um, there were disconnects between uh, what DOD was reporting as legal liabilities and and the support at the component level. Also, uh, inconsistent ways of tracking those legal contingencies at the component level across components, which makes it hard at the DOD level to have an accurate number, so you know, twenty-five of the material weaknesses, as I mentioned, were repeated from from prior years. Two significant deficiencies were upgraded to material weaknesses, uh, and then there was one new material weakness for a total of twenty-eight.
1: Um, I want to come back to the big picture on material weaknesses in, in just a minute, but I, I want to take a quick rabbit trail on the Joint Strike Fighter program real quick, just because it 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 stands out in that it's the only weapon system that I'm aware of that's ever been noted as a material weakness on the on the financial statements. I mean, the rest of them are these broad systemic challenges like, you know, failure to have proper IT access controls and and not having accurate fund balances with Treasury. What is it about the Joint Strike Fighter program that's so concerning that it amounts to a, a material weakness all by itself?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, Joint Strike Fighter program is interesting, you know, and, and, but when we sort of uh, Melt it down, it's really another uh, inventory issue, right? Uh, and DOD has had long standing uh, issues with with accounting for, for inventory. The goal really was to uh, be able to coordinate uh, across components and record joint strike fighter property uh, within an accountable property system of record. Uh, and that's hard when you coordinate across components and then also uh, with contractors, um, and, you know, the department is not quite there yet. They're not going to make that goal, uh, in, or they didn't make the goal in 2021, and it doesn't look like they'll make it in 2022 either. I mean, there is a glimmer of hope there. They were able to do some uh, existence testing and validate some of the, the numbers at different sites, but but still that, that has not made it into uh, the financial statements and been assigned a number.
1: Um, okay, good Good answer. Coming back to the, the bigger picture of the material weaknesses, there's also this separate category called significant DOD material weaknesses. There are, I want to say, seven of those, and, and, and DOD has put its own explicit attention on those. In fact, I think the department's the one that identifies the, the significant material weaknesses. Has, has putting more management attention on those moved the needle at all?
2: So I'd say, yeah, so the uh, significant material weaknesses are the ones that, that we focus in on, as part of the, the, the Understanding the Results document. And those are, are the ones that are sort of on part of management's attention, which again, uh, to make this document uh, relatable, understandable, and useful for management, those are the ones that, that we focus in on as well. But again, like as we talk through these uh, material weaknesses, the message this year is really that progress has really stalled. I think some of the easy wins of, of early years have sort of been taken so now we're at a point where um yeah i mean we can celebrate the fact that that management has sort of more awareness of the the operational impact of effective controls and they're able to sort of stress that uh, operational impact down the chain a couple of these uh focus areas uh particularly fund balance with treasury is a good example where the department was able to champion real coordination especially with the Defense Finance and Accounting Service, or or DFAS for short, uh, the components and the auditors, to get deeper into some testing there and to be able to do some agency-wide testing, which gave them some results that they're uh, able to sort of more efficiently apply across the board. In the inventory-related areas, we did see uh, sort of increased existence testing uh, this past year. Uh, but from a results standpoint, progress has stalled, and 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 the the theme that we're stressing in in the understanding the results discussion is that now that we have sort of those senior level positions filled, it's time to be focusing on sort of measurable uh, goals that 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 we can hold uh, the components accountable for, and then again a, a re-energized emphasis on sustainable business processes that that will move the needle a lot more than sort of the one-off uh,
1: NFRs of the past. Yeah, and we don't we don't have time to get into a ton of detail on each one of those significant weaknesses, but I'd, I'd like to try and drill down on the information technology one a little bit if we can, just because it is so huge. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's still true this year, but I think in past years, IT-related NFRs were, were responsible for over half of the total universe of NFRs is that still the case Has dod made any kind of progress in in the it arena because it's it's so key to all of this
2: right yeah i'd say that, that there there wasn't much movement from a, a percentage standpoint on it nfrs and and you're right to say that this is a key area that that, that can really sort of take care of some of the other issues you know it's all it, when it comes down to it, it's, it's the security and quality of the the data and you know in the past uh, the the dod has kind of focused on um, four main weaknesses. Uh, and, and the main one or the one that, that, that they have made some progress in but continue to struggle in addressing across the board is that, that access control material weakness, right? The, the management continues to sort of fix those uh, NFRs in, in specific systems. but you know as the audit scope expands, uh, we're finding that that similar issues are still there across the board. Uh, You know, another area that that would go a long way is is talking about uh, legacy systems, right? So some of these legacy systems uh, have been around since the the 1960s, and and they can't capture that transaction-level data necessary to provide accurate information up the board, not only for for sort of financial statements, but um, really for effective decision-making. You know, this is an area that's uh, gotten a lot more interest from Congress as well. Um, They've set up a, a, a working group made of uh, former uh, DoD comptrollers and a variety of others to look at legacy systems. You know, the, the, the number of legacy systems uh, is in the hundreds, right? So when you have sort of three digits uh, of systems that can't capture the, the required information and you start multiplying that out, you can see how uh, some of the other areas like inventory or real property um, can be impacted. Because you know, if the data is not there and, and they're having to sort of transfer data between systems and, and, and oftentimes systems can't talk to each other, uh, so there's a, 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 an adjustment made or a journal voucher made at a summary level, you lose a lot of that detail uh, necessary to kind of perform reconciliations and, and be able to identify where the, the root cause is.
1: Yeah, and you, you kind of hinted at this, but I, it seems like another big key here is that these, these larger, especially the larger feeder systems, there's so many interdependencies between DOD organizations and those systems such that no single organization is responsible for the system. And I think you even point out in this year's report that there are a bunch of systems that are not even in DOD's control. So the department, you know, if the defense secretary tomorrow ordered changes to to some of these things, they couldn't fix them. That, that, that you know... Lack of control over some of this stuff makes this an especially wicked problem, it seems like.
2: No, I totally agree. And, and that's why it goes back to sort of strong leadership and coordination and, and the fact that, that that those senior level positions are filled now. That kind of stresses like, hey, there's an opportunity here uh, to coordinate across and, and really sort of verbalize what it is that we need from the systems. But then also focusing on renewing efforts to retire these legacy systems to plug them into systems that, that do have those capabilities that are, that are lacking in the legacy systems. Um, but knowing sort of when, when those transitions happen, stressing the importance of, of, of quality data, you know, you don't want to just transfer all the, the bad data into a new system ex- expecting that that's going to fix the issue, um, and, and, having internal controls over, uh, sort of that transfer. Uh, but then understanding that, that, that new system isn't the fix all. Uh, you know, going forward, there have to be controls in place to ensure that that data stays secure and and reliable.
1: Marcus Gullett, the Deputy Assistant DoD Inspector General for Audit, Financial Management, and Reporting. We're talking about this year's edition of the OIG's Plain Language Breakdown of DoD's Financial Audit Results. We'll dig into what the IG thinks the way forward ought to be to get DoD out of the stalled progress situation we've been talking about in just a minute. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio. I'm Jared Serbin. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. It's on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And a few more minutes with Marcus Gullett, the Deputy Assistant DOD Inspector General for Audit, Financial Management, and Reporting. As we do every year, we're talking about the OIG's plain language breakdown of what the audit found in the past year. All right. This year's report also includes a a section toward the the end that you call the way forward, which which I think has around four different kind of broad recommendations for the department. You, You want to take us... Take us through those somewhat briefly and, and let us know what you think DOD leadership ought to be focused on.
2: Yeah, so the way forward this year in some ways kind of mirrors uh, what we've talked about before. Uh, but in other ways, we try to, to, to expand on some of those thoughts. And the three main areas that we focus on is uh, developing measurable goals, uh, holding DOD components accountable, uh, and then developing sustainable business processes. So, you know, what we're seeing as a positive Trend is that a few years ago, the DoD comptroller, Mr. Norquist, directed the, the DoD components to develop audit roadmaps, right? To kind of map out their plans for obtaining favorable audit opinions. Uh, and, and while that kind of sets up a, a valuable framework to think about how to make progress, what we saw were that the, the, the roadmaps are oftentimes sort of inconsistent across components. They're also have sort of vague uh, measures of success. Uh, so one of the things that really focused in on in, in developing measurable goals is is taking a top-down approach, right? At the DoD controller level, sort of um, uh, pushing down their expectations for these roadmaps and and developing a roadmap of their own uh, and holding those components accountable for the the goals kind of set out in their roadmaps, uh, which brings us to holding uh, DoD components accountable. You know. The, the goals that at the DoD level that they've set and, and talked through in, in various documents uh, have changed over the years. The ranking report, which was uh, mandated by Congress that, that, that DoD sort of rank the different components about who's sort of closest to auditability. Uh, the first year, three years that DoD published that, there were different criteria uh, to complete the ranking report, so it's been uh, challenging to to compare that across years which again, it sort of increases the complexity of, of what it is that the department's trying to accomplish and then how to how to hold people accountable when um, it changes from year to year. And then the third thing is really around developing sustainable business processes. You know, in, in many instances, the DOD and, and components are developing sort of these uh, one-off solutions to move the needle maybe on an individual um, financial statement audit, but not necessarily thinking about Uh, the the enterprise implications of that. So one example is in an effort to to be able to value your inventory uh, or real property, for example, you know, a lot of those records uh, are long gone, right? So there's not sort of that support to be able to assign a value to your accounting records. So the standards allow for a one-time valuation. So an alternative way to value uh, real property, for example. So, If you think of a a component thinking through okay this is the way that that we're going to apply that that one-time valuation methodology well the dod as a whole has an interest in making sure that that's consistent across the board because in the end they're going to be presenting that information at the dod level and they're going to be able to need to support um, what's reported on the financial statements so in thinking about how to go about uh, overcoming some of these wicked problems as you call them they really lend themselves to to that DoD level engagement where they're facilitating these discussions across components, but ultimately giving some some feedback and some some instruction on what they expect to see in order to ensure that consistency. And then you know the last thing that we touch on that way forward section is is overcoming accounting challenges, right? So so each year you know there's there's those known knowns, there's those uh, known unknowns. But, you know, as the audits progress, there, there's various accounting challenges and that require coordination uh, between the components, uh, between the auditors, between Congress, uh, and it really it's highlighting the need for, for, to be able to identify those issues that need further engagement and to be able to prioritize them from year to year. So, for example, this year, DISA continues to request uh, an extension past uh, the mid-November timeframe. To provide uh, support needed to obtain an unmodified opinion. Uh, so typically, they, they issue their you know the audit report comes out in December to give additional time to to finish up that testing. You know the Marine Corps I- received legislative and, and OMB approval to undergo a two year audit uh, in order to to have additional time to to develop uh, internal controls. So all of this uh, is that you know challenges are going to come up year to year, and the the need to really acknowledge that you can't focus on everything. Uh, in one year. There's going to need to be a prioritization and focus and sort of rack and stack those and focus on them. So, you know, again, way forward, uh, developing measurable goals, uh, holding DoD components accountable, developing sustainable business processes. And then we added in that sort of overcoming accounting challenges as well. Yeah,
1: those all seem like totally sensible recommendations, but also really hard, which, which I guess takes me to my sort of devil's advocate Bring us home, question, which is, you know, the people who are, have been skeptical from the audit process all along would probably point to about this point in time and say, see, progress is stalled. We're spending a billion dollars a year on this whole process. All the low hanging fruit has been picked at, at this point. At what point do we say, let's stop throwing good money after bad? Let's rescope the audit. Let's do something different. Is that all wrong, or do you think this this process, as designed, as laid out in the CFO Act, really is achievable at some point for DoD?
2: Well, what I'd say is, you know, I think that the focus, uh, and and it, it has changed over the years, but you know, the focus is really that that management is starting to have more of an awareness on the on the operational impact. And I think that's what what's going to sort of drive home the benefits of the audit, right? So when you have effective controls. And you stress sort of the the operational impact down the chain. We're certainly hearing less of that. We're just doing this for the audit, right? Um, right? You know, each year the auditors identify something tangible. It kind of highlights that that importance. So, you know, the the this past year the Navy highlighted uh, that inventory records at, at sites showed sort of the records showed one amount, uh, and the, when the auditors went to the site. There was a different amount, less amount. You know, another DLA site uh, auditors found that, that um, DLA wasn't measuring certain metals accurately, and that, you know, I, example after example. The risk here is that if you don't know what you have and where you have it, your ability to accomplish your mission uh, can be hampered. And many of these organizations are are providing a service; they're service providers to other DoD entities. Um, which, which has even a, a higher responsibility of providing what, what those entities need at the right time and the ra- right amounts. I would also point to contingencies, right? So, so contingencies this year, like Ukraine or, or COVID-19 or Afghanistan uh, civilian relocation, th- those happen. And if the, the DOD doesn't have the controls in place to really not only accomplish its enduring mission, but then also to be able to pivot to support these contingencies, That's going to have a a bigger impact on uh, the the overall operating budget, right? So if you can't if you can't track, if you don't have the control to sort of track that spending accurately, uh, you may be sort of having to supplement it with your with your normal budget. But you know, just to to put a bow on it, we're talking about some of the same issues each year, but also like we have seen the benefits of the audits, especially as you talk about that sort of operational impact and, and how it can aid decision-making in other areas. Um, and again, you know, this is a time where those senior-level positions are filled. Uh, it's an opportunity to really hone in on on developing those sustainable solutions with clear goals uh, and holding uh, those components accountable and really sort of kick-starting that progress again.
1: Marcus Gullett, the Deputy Assistant DoD Inspector General for Audit, Financial Management, and Reporting. We'll post a link to the report we've been talking about, understanding the 2021 DOD audit results, at federalnewsnetwork.com on DOD. One more break, and when we return, a new review by GAO finds serious problems with DOD's process to pick a new home for U.S. Space Command. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD, I'm Jared Serbu. The Air Force's decision to pick Huntsville, Alabama, as the new headquarters of U.S. Space Command has been controversial from the start, and a new review by the Government Accountability Office says the selection process had a lot of problems. GAO doesn't opine on whether Huntsville was the right decision or the wrong one, but the office says the Air Force made some fundamental missteps when it deviated from its own base selection framework. Instead, the ad hoc version it used for the Space Command selection had serious credibility and transparency problems. Elizabeth Field is Director of Defense Capability and Management Issues at GAO, and she talked with me about the findings.
0: The Air Force does have an instruction, it's called an Air Force instruction, that guides strategic basing decisions, and it was a process that it was following, for the most part, um, up until about March of 2020. Then, to your point, uh, then Secretary of Defense Mark Esper directed the Air Force to reopen the process and revise the process to model the Army's future command basing process that it had used. I should note that that process was also not consistent with an existing policy. So there really wasn't policy that the Air Force was or could follow at that point, the memo from Secretary Esper essentially superseded the Air Force instruction.
1: But I think the point here is that the Air Force could still have built a process or followed a process that used all of the best practices that GAOs identified whenever you're doing any kind of analysis of alternatives, and you found some serious shortcomings there. You want to briefly take us through what those were?
0: Sure. Well, and first, I, I want to very much affirm your your question about whether the Air Force still could have, could have followed best practices. And the answer is absolutely. And in fact, that's the reason that GAO created these best practices back in 2016. We recognized that there was not a broadly recognized set of guidelines that federal government agencies or even private sector entities could use to help consider different options and alternatives when they were faced with a question like the one that the Air Force was, was faced with in this instance. So we applied what we call our analysis of alternatives criteria to the Air Force's process for selecting the Spacecom preferred location. And what we found uh, were, were quite a number of weaknesses. So. Those criteria that I just mentioned are grouped into four characteristics of a high-quality, reliable process. And those characteristics are comprehensive, well-documented, credible, and unbiased. And we went through a fairly uh, methodical approach of applying our criteria where we actually come up with a numerical score that we can give to the Air Force for each of those Um, characteristics. And what we found is that the Air Force substantially met the comprehensive characteristics. So in that case, there were some good things that the Air Force did, but it only partially met the well-documented and unbiased characteristics, and it minimally met the credible characteristic. And just to give you a few examples of some of the problems that we identified, um, the Air Force changed the definition of some of the criteria that it used over time as it was trying to evaluate the candidate locations. The Air Force also changed how it was weighting different criteria, which is important because you you want to maintain however you are weighting different criteria across, uh, across the board. Uh, there was no independent review conducted of the process, which typically the Air Force would do, uh, and so on and so forth. So there really were quite a lot of problems.
1: I wonder to what extent if at all the air force deserves a bit of a pass here in the sense that they were directed to deviate from what would have been their their normal practice again by the secretary in a pretty heavily politicized environment and in a situation that's really kind of a one-off for them right because they're not making a basing decision for one of their own bases they're acting as the executive agent for someone else there's a, there's a lot of uniqueness about this event that in some ways, it's understandable that they would deviate from their own processes, isn't it?
0: Well, it's certainly understandable that they might deviate from their own process. Um, I think where where things went south is that in doing so, they made some mistakes that are really pretty fundamental um, problems that that if you don't have those sort of boxes checked, you're going to have a problem at the end of the day. Um, but but that is why we our recommendation in this report is that moving forward, the Air Force established guidance that is consistent with our practices, that it can apply to future basing decisions such as this one, so that it doesn't run into the same problems that it did this time around.
1: Well, one thing I do want to make clear is, is it di- didn't seem like any of the people that you talked to or that were stakeholders in this process had the sense that Huntsville was a bad choice in the end. It was it was always considered among the top tier of possible locations for space command. So whatever one thinks of the process and how the Air Force got there, there's there's not really a risk that Space Command is going to end up in a bad place for its needs. Is that fair?
0: That is fair. So there are six final candidate locations All of them are considered what is termed reasonable alternatives to the selected location, meaning any of those six uh, the Air Force has determined uh, could meet the the mission need.
1: But the process is still problematic, right? And I think you you, you make this point in your conclusion that the public needs to have confidence that the process is sound so that things don't go off the rails next time and, and where a bad choice really could be
0: made. That's right. I mean, ideally, even if someone disagrees with the final decision and doesn't like the location that was picked for reasons that are are pretty obvious, uh, they should still have confidence that the process was handled appropriately and responsibly. And that just didn't happen here.
1: What more specifically could the Air Force do? I mean, do they they need to design and write down a process that is tailorable for something like this, where where they're called upon to go outside of the way they would normally use a basing process for their own basis, for their own needs?
0: Well, our best practices that we recommend they adopt in guidance for future processes uh, allow for tailoring to whatever the question is that that you're approaching. And so, and this is really important to, to point out, a certain amount of professional judgment is always going to be part of any process like this. And our criteria account for that. So it's really more about making sure that you have a methodology that you have clearly defined from the outset, that you don't deviate from in the middle of the process, that you clearly document the assumptions that you've made, the methodology that you're using, the decisions that you're making along the way. And that you do things like having an independent review to ensure impartiality and conducting something called a sensitivity review, where you test the assumptions in your model and see how changes to those assumptions affect your outcomes. The Air Force really didn't do any of those things. And I think,
1: maybe this is just a piece that's not in the final report, but I think one of the big missing pieces were cost differentials between possible alternatives, how much they would save or spend if they went with a different location.
0: That's right. So one of our best practices is that the uh, body that is conducting the process consider sort of full life cycle costs uh, of whatever the decision is that they're trying to make. And we found that there were some costs that were not considered at all, such as any costs that might be incurred for relocation of Space Command. Right now it is provisionally located at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado, so those costs weren't considered maintenance of infrastructure costs were not considered. We also found that there were costs that the the Air Force just couldn't document how they calculated them. So there's something called high-altitude electromagnetic pulse shielding. It's also known as hemp shielding. Uh, And it's really important, though, because it protects communications uh, technology from high-intense energy attack, essentially. And the Air Force told us they had some experts who came up with those cost estimates, but they couldn't show us where that was documented. So all of those things are problematic.
1: Elizabeth, pretty strong language in this report by GAO standards. Um, and, and you found what you've talked about are, are serious problems. Why is there not a recommendation here for the Air Force to, to go back and, and redo its work the right way?
0: Well, I, I appreciate that question. And there are a couple of answers to that. But the first and most important here, is that that is ultimately a judgment call. It is a policy call. And GAO is not a policy-making body. Uh, this decision has not yet been finalized. And so it is up to the Air Force, along with Congress and others, to weigh the costs and benefits of potentially redoing the process. Uh, the second reason is, you know, we did not in this report seek to Validate the decision that the Air Force made. We don't suggest whether the Air Force made the quote unquote correct decision or not, or even whether the Air Force would have come to a different conclusion had it fully applied our best practices. Uh, and so the the lack of a recommendation to redo the process should not be taken as uh, an endorsement of Redstone Arsenal as the preferred location, or a denigration of Redstone Arsenal as the preferred location.
1: And and I guess that that brings up one last question, which is would it be possible for the Air Force to work backwards here a little bit, fill in some of the missing data, do some of the legwork that wasn't done as part of the process in order to solve some of the credibility and transparency problems that you identified without going all the way back to the beginning? Or or is the problem just that the data doesn't exist and can't be recreated at this point?
0: Well, it's certainly the case that some of the data cannot be recreated. Uh, When we tried to collect the documentation that the Air Force had compiled to do the analysis, we weren't able to collect it in, in many cases, either because it, it never existed or because it had been lost. The Air Force, Air Force pointed to a, uh, a software update that caused them to lose some of their documentation. I think it also would be hard to ameliorate all of the problems that we found with this process, because some of them were there from the beginning, for example, not clearly defining criteria. And so it would be hard to go back and do that.
1: That's Elizabeth Field, Director of Defense Capability and Management Issues at GAO. You can find a link to the report we've been talking about at federalnewsnetwork.com. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Marcus Gullett, the Deputy Assistant DOD Inspector General for Audit, Financial Management, and Reporting about the past year's results of DOD's financial audit process, if you missed that conversation, our full program, as always, will be posted at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DoD and in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Servian. So long.
0: You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.